Amen. And amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome, everybody, to Marin Covenant Church. My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, we are in the Summer in the Scriptures, super fun. And so we're giving away Bibles. And uh, I want to make sure that Ella got one because Colin's got one. But if you know Ella and she finds out that she got gypped, it's not going to go well for you at your house. So I want to make sure you guys got a, a Bible for Ella. But does anyone else, have, have you not gotten one of these awesome NIV giant awesome study Bibles? Is there anyone who needs one who does not have this yet? Really, Luke? Fine. All right. Good. All right. Oh, I'm sorry. You're, you're right. Happy birthday, Luke. That's for you. That's your birthday, our gift from our church. I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. I, I must have spent a lot of time with my kids this week, and I'm like, Grr! so I'm sorry. Luke, God bless you. That's from us to you. I'm so thankful for that. <laughs> Oh boy. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're in summer in the scriptures, and uh, we're going to be talking about origin stories. I don't know if you if you like origin stories. If you if you like superhero films, you for sure like origin stories. You know, Batman is a super awesome superhero, mostly because he has a cape and he looks super super tough. Um, but if you saw the movie Batman Begins, then you're like, oh. Now you love Batman even more. You realize why he's the Batman. You know, you realize he fell into a, a well. You realize how he became this punk kid to this total noble vigilante servant of Gotham. I mean, it's just the best movie ever. Origin stories, right? They give us this idea. They, they, they paint the picture of how to navigate our lives. They're, they, 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 they're the map for our place in this world and show us how to get from one place to the other, how to live and move and breathe among us. So it happens in fiction movies all the time, but the truth is it happens everywhere. It happens in politics. Right now there's this huge national debate, right? Is 1776 the founding of the country or is 1619 the founding of our country? And depending on where you land, where your starting point is, actually impacts how you feel about yourself, about the world, about our country, about things moving forward. Um, but it's not just politically, it actually happens for ourselves too. If you've ever been to therapy, therapy is super important. But one of the benefits of therapy, right, is you get to relook at your own origin story. You see the things that shaped you and molded you, and you get to start realizing, is this the right map for my life? Or do I need some adjustments along the way? So therapy is super important and does that as well. But the exact same thing true is spiritually, that we have to understand our origin story if we're going to understand what it means to be people of faith. And we have our own origin story, and that is the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, and that is our origin story. And what's interesting is, what about the Pentateuch is our origin story? Where do we actually begin the story? And last week, Michael did this great uh, sermon about Genesis 1 and 2, about how we're made in the image of God. That's a beautiful origin story. But if you read one more chapter of Genesis 3, you realize uh, that we're sinful, rebellious people, and we've been expelled from Eden. Well, that's a, tough, that's a tougher origin story. And if you start reading through Genesis, it gets tougher and tougher. All of a sudden, you get through six through nine in Genesis, and you realize God regretted making humans. Oh, that's great. And then floods the earth. So that's a good origin story. Then humans come back, populate the world. And then there's the, uh, the Tower of Babel, and he scatters everybody. That's another good origin story, right? So if you just land on any one of those origin stories, you're like, God, what is up? But what I love about God and what I love about Scripture is not one of those individual stories is our origin story. The entire Pentateuch is our origin story. God is such a complex story. There's so many things that are going on. We don't just get to go, this is the one thing, right? Batman falling into a well did not make Batman. That's one part of the story. It's the whole thing. And here we have the Pentateuch, all five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Those are the, that is our origin story. And so um, just a quick summary, because it's a lot of words, but I'm just going to give you the one minute rundown of it, right? So Genesis is 
all the stories of, of the earth being created. It's the beginning of the family of God. It's the call of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of their family gnarliness. Exodus is them, right? They, they, they go to Egypt uh, to escape a famine and Exodus finds the people of Israel in Egypt and they're slaves and God hears their cry and rescues them and takes them out of Egypt onto the precipice of the promised land and gives them the, the law. Then Leviticus is this whole book about how we as a broken, sinful people are supposed to interact with this holy and righteous God. And lots of weird things that we don't understand, but that's the whole point of it. And then Numbers is them being totally rebellious, uh, the Israelites being rebellious jerks and going, thanks God, we actually want to go back to Egypt. We don't want what you have for us. And God ends up letting them wander around for 40 years. And there's all these weird, gnarly stories of them wandering and being rebellious punks. And then finally, after that generation dies, the next generation is ready to go and take the promised land. And Deuteronomy is the second reading. It's the second giving of the, of the story, of the stories of God and the law for them to get ready to take uh, to, with them into the promised land. But that whole thing, the Pentateuch, is our origin story. All of that complexity. Oh, see that? Now you need Bible experts. Okay. But what's interesting is for all of that that's going on, the Pentateuch actually isn't the right framing for understanding our origin story. The Pentateuch is simply Greek that says five books. There you go. That's it. Five books. The correct framing is actually the Hebrew framing, which is the law. The five books of the, of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy are the law. It's a covenant between this holy God and these righteous, I mean, and these sinful human beings, you and me. And it's really interesting because a lot of scholars think that the law was framed very closely tied to this idea of a suzerain and vassal treaty. Now, a suzerain king is this mighty, strong, powerful king in the, in the ancient Near East. And what happened is they would come and they would conquer a people. And then the people, right after they were conquered, they had the choice to either die or submit. And most people, after a bunch of people died, they go, okay, fine. The rest of them said, we'll submit. So they, then they put up a vassal king and they said, okay, so I'm the mighty king. I'm the suzerain king. You're the lesser king. You're the vassal king. And what you're going to do is you are going to live this way. If you're going to live in part of my kingdom and part of my rule, this is how you're going to live. And, uh, and so part of that treaty is that begins in this, this way that we're going to find out is actually how the Torah is written. You, there's an identity. It says, this is me. I am so-and-so king of this area, and I'm the, they do a great in Game of Thrones, but I forget all the things. I'm a little nervous, but that's the whole deal, right? That they, they, they identify themselves and their character and why they're so great. And then they tell about what they did and why this, this vassal king should respect them. And then there are all these stipulations for how to, what, the, what to do. Well, that is the idea of the Torah. The Torah, the law, is this idea that there is this mighty king who longs to be in relationship with these people. But what is so unique, and we don't think it's unique because it's part of our culture, but what's so unique for the time is everybody understands power. I am the most powerful king and you will submit or die. That's kind of how all of human history works. But the Torah, the God of the universe, the God of scripture says, I am going to be this king and I'm going to invite you into covenant with me. And it's an invitation into this relationship with God, not this giant hammer. And, uh, and so what we're going to see throughout this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at in Exodus chapter 20 is the idea that God longs to be in relationship with us, that God is the suzerain king and invites us to be these vassals, to be these partners with him in his growing and expanding kingdom. And in all these laws, so really um, in all of these laws, um, there's 613 of them. And in all those laws, 
um, Jesus finally comes and, and corrects that. So we're just going to jump ahead really quickly because you're thinking, what are, there's a lot of weird laws in there that are we supposed to do, right? There's like, if, if a husband and wife are fighting, there are certain things women can't do. Um, there's certain places you're supposed to go to relieve yourself outside the camp. Like there's weird laws like that. But then there's also these incredible laws about not killing, not lying, not coveting, remembering that you're foreigners and uh, that you're supposed to care for the widow and the, and the, and the, um, the poor and the oppressed, right? Um, and so Jesus then takes all these laws, and we're going to see it by the end of the sermon, is that Jesus fulfills these laws, that Jesus becomes the ultimate suzerain king. We become the ultimate vessel in Jesus. And Jesus wraps this whole story up of the Pentateuch in one simple statement. John 14, verse 15 says this, if you love me, keep my commands. So if you want to know the sum total of the Torah, it is this, John 14, 15. I bet you could close your eyes. If you love me, pretty good. We'll try one more time. If you love me, keep my commands. That's the sum total of the whole Torah, right? There he is. You have figured out this idea of this, the suzerain king, God Almighty, the God of the universe, longing to invite us to be vassal kings. So the Pentateuch really is this. The, if you want to understand what the Pentateuch is, the Pentateuch is simply us keeping our end of the treaty. The Pentateuch was written as a treaty form from the suzerain king to these vassal kings, from the God most high to us humans, and our part is what is keeping of the treaty. So that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, and that's the, the center of the law. It's the Ten Commandments. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, it says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So right here, you see the beginning of the suzerain-vassal relationship. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, an acknowledgement of who this person is, that God is identifying himself. He says, I am the Lord your God. And whenever you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the name of God. That's his first name. That is Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. I am who I am. When Moses goes uh, to the burning bush and God tells him his name, I am who I am, Yahweh. That is the very personal first name of God. In fact, it's the, game, it's the name that people do, you do not speak. And in fact, you didn't speak so much that in the, the Hebrew manuscripts, they would put the, the, uh, the vowels. So the Hebrew manuscripts have no vowels in them. And there's little dots and dashes that would make those, um, that would make vowels that you knew where the vowels were. And so wherever it said Yahweh, they would add the words Adonai, the vowels of Adonai. And that meant Lord. And what's interesting is the beginning biblical scholars that are putting this together, they said, oh, the, the first name of God is the constants Yahweh and the, um, and the vowels of Adonai. And then that's how you got Yehovah, that song that we just sang. So that's a little bit of a trivia for you. So prove I went to seminary, at least paid attention for a second. <laughs> but that's the idea that, that, that it starts, it begins with, I am the Lord your God. Who's making this treaty? Who is the person that you should be listening to? I am Yahweh. I am the self-existent one. I'm the one who spoke creation into existence. I am holy. I'm a consuming fire. I'm the one who's going to open up the land and swallow people. I'm the people that needs an entire book of the Bible to know how to make a tabernacle so that you can interact with me because I am holy and righteous. I am this mighty king. But what's interesting is he's not just this ruler of, that's drunk with power. He's this loving father who is, um, he says, I'm the father of Israel. I'm long-suffering. He's patient and kind. So he says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord your God. That's where it begins. It says, 
I am God. So the very first thing is that we learn about the mighty character of God. So when we're looking at this treaty and we look at the Pentateuch and we look at the very beginning, I am the Lord your God, excuse me, who brought you out of the land of slavery, who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. And so the very second thing we realize is that we experience this human dilemma. And right in the very beginning, we, the Israelites were in Egypt in the land of slavery. But when you read through the Pentateuch, you realize human beings have been in trouble their entire existence. Right away, game, uh, right? They get kicked out of the Garden of Eden and they're naked and have no food and God has to provide for them. All of a sudden, brothers are murdering each other. Uh, There's family dynamic. You know, there's overactive mothers who are just like crushing their sons. Um, That's for you, mom. She's not listening right now. But right, there's really crazy family dynamics that happen. Uh, There's famine. um, There's slavery. There's strife. Right? It is the whole Old Testament is just that human beings are just in a world of hurt. And when we read, it's funny, this was written so long ago in a culture so different than ours. Yet when we read it, we, it makes sense to us because it's the human experience. We realize human beings have not changed. We are rebellious. We are grumblers. We are angry. We are selfish. We are prideful. And so we read through the Pentateuch, we understand the, our own human experience of sin, of brokenness, that happens to us, but also that we're aware of. And as you read through the Pentateuch, you realize that there's all of this language about recognizing our own sin and our own brokenness and God trying to find ways to restore us back to himself. So we learn about the mighty power of God. We experience this human dilemma, but then we realize this incredible part that while we were helpless, that's when God acted. This is what's so incredible about this treaty, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. While they were helpless, while they were being slaves, it was at that moment that God acted and God rescued them. All throughout the Old Testament, even in all those things, when they get expelled from the Garden of Eden, God provides clothing for them. When the famine comes, God provides a way for Jacob's family to leave and to have food. When they were slaves in Egypt, God found a way for them to be freed. Every part of the story of God is God acting in generosity and graciousness to his really rebellious people. Now, what I think is awesome about this is when you start reading through the whole Old Testament, and especially through the Pentateuch, you realize there's this incredible thing that happens. The way that God acts is through the picture of the lamb. So leaving Egypt... First of all, there's a Passover lamb. They sacrifice a lamb. They put the blood on the doors uh, and the doorposts of their house. And then when the Holy Spirit or the the Spirit of God passes through, he passes over those uh, those homes and he rescues the Israelites before he sends them off into the promised land. You read through the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Pentateuch, and you realize that we are sinful people. And because we're sinful people, we can't enter the tabernacle of God. We can't enter the presence of God because of our own sin. And yet God provides the lamb an atoning sacrifice that covers our sin. And what I love is that Jesus hearkens back to the law. He's the fulfiller of the law. And he says, listen, I am the ultimate Passover lamb. I am the ultimate atoning lamb because of my sacrifice, because of my death. Death will wash over you and will have no place for you. Sin has no more ownership over over you. The tabernacle that had this curtain that separated the Holy of Holies to the whole rest of of the tabernacle is torn in two because Jesus fulfills this law. 
And we see that it didn't just happen. It wasn't, oh, Jesus is great and the Old Testament God was so angry. No, all throughout the story of God is God acting on our behalf, God being gracious to his people, God finding ways to help us when we are helpless. Um, I love it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, right? It says that while we were yet sinners is when Jesus died for our sins. It's an incredible gift and story of God. And so the big question is, how are we going to respond? So that's like some good old-fashioned Jewish history um, and biblical history that understand that the Pentateuch, those five books of the Bible, is this treaty that God made with us. But instead of a dominating king crushing a weaker people, compelling them, he's inviting us to be partners with him. And so how are we going to respond? And what's interesting is we see throughout Scripture and we see in our own lives, there's kind of three ways that we respond. One is through rebellion. That's easy. We get that. Someone says, don't do this. And we say, well, then I am doing that. Um, The second thing is through bitter grumbling. Like, okay, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to hate every second of it. And I love it. I have two kids. My daughter will go, no way. I'm not doing it. My son, he'll do it, but I can tell it crushes his soul, right? Um, So those are two ways. Um, And then the third way um, that the the Pharisees did a good job with, Christians have done a good job with, was this idea of legalism. And what that means is that we go, hey, we want to love God. We want to follow the rules. And so we're going to follow the rules so hard that we're going to make sure we love God. But somehow we forget that we're supposed to love God in our legalism. And we've used our legalism to actually crush others, to make sure to point our fingers at other people saying, nope, you failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. But all three of those responses miss out, I think, on the incredible invitation that God has for us. So if it's not those things, then what is it? Well, I think there's three ways, right? That that God, when he invites us into this treaty, one is this attitude of gratitude. We recognize that we were lost people. We were broken people. We were sinful people. We were in desperate need of God. And when we were helpless, God acted. And if our starting point of our origin story is we were in desperate need and God acted, our whole faith journey is different than I am awesome and I need God to do this for me, right? Our whole way we understand the world is 100% different. If we were helpless and God acted, then all of a sudden we have gratitude. And once we have gratitude, right, then we go, okay, God, what do you want from me? And we recognize through the teachings of scripture, there becomes this invitation to sanctification, to become more and more like God, but not only for sanctification, but then to be partners with God and to be used by God. Now, here's where I think is super fascinating. We all think that the more that we understand that God loves us, the more we think we are gonna be better people or changed people. But the truth is, is that is not how it works. Now, when you read through scripture, if you've been around the church long enough, you realize God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? We, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Even from the beginning of the Torah, they were compelling the Israelites to know that God loves them and God loves them. So God loves us is the beginning of the story, but that's not actually what causes life change. What actually changes us is when we make the switch and realize, I love God. Once I realize that I love God, now my entire posture towards God changes. And we do this in our real life, right? The people that we love in our real life, right, actually changes us. I think I've told the story before, but um, I built a Jeep with Jake Stark because I love Jake. Do I know how to build things? No. Did I spend four years and $1,000 to try to make this thing work? Yes. Did I do it so I could hang out with Jake? Yes. Did I spend $2,000 more to have everything I did 
get refixed by a professional? Yes. <laughs> but do I care? No, because I love Jake. Because I love him, I changed my life. I tuned my life a little bit differently to be like him, right? Um, I want to be like you, Chad. And so I also, I'm going to a fish concert. I don't even know who fish is, but I'm learning because I want to be like Chad, right? Um, Where's Frank, right? Frank, I climbed Mount Rainier because I love you. I want to be like you, right? Because I love people, I'm willing to make these giant sacrifices, not out of duty, not out of bitterness, not out of legalism, because I want to be with the people that I love. Kay and I, we just celebrated our 24th anniversary. Can you believe that? I know. Jeff, you didn't tell me, 24 is a hard one. Teenagers, midlife, we were just like, oh, bottle of wine. It was a, it was a hard one. Um, but what was interesting is I thought, oh my goodness, I, I love Katie. And what was interesting is my, as I was reflecting on this, I realized over 24 years, my character has actually changed. And I know you may not see this, but I mean, I am mean-spirited and I like crude humor. I like competition. And I'm just basically a jerk, like in my inner being. But I realized over 24 years of being connected to Katie, who's the most kind-hearted, soft and gentle person, that I actually had to change my being, right? Because I loved her. Not because she wanted those things from me, but because I love her and I want to bless her. And so when we tune that towards God, we realize God loves me, God loves me, that's great. But once we tune our affections and go, no, God, I love you. Once we realize that I love you, God. So because I love God, I actually want my character to be in line with God. I want to actually be holy and be sanctified because I want my character to be in line with him. So I want to say no to the things that hurt God's heart. I want my life to be tuned by love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. But I don't want to just be holy and sanctified. I actually want to be put to work to be used by God. I want there to not only be personal sanctification, but I want there to be public righteousness. I want my entire life to be shaped by compassion and mercy and justice. I want to use the the gifts that God's given me, the spheres of influence that God's given me, the resources that God has given me to be an agent of expanding God's kingdom in every broken world, every broken system, whether it's in my family, in our church, in our schools, in our community. But I don't do those things out of legalism. I don't do those things out of compulsion. I'm not trying to earn God's favor. It's because I love God. Because I love God, I want to be about the things of God. Because I love God, I want my life to look like God. Because I love God, I want to be partners with the kingdom of God. And when I fail, often, as my wife would attest to, how thankful that we love a God who is long-suffering and through the Lamb of God has wiped all of our sin away, has restored us into right relationship with Him, and we can take advantage of that both now and forevermore. Well, one of the things that I, I invited um, Ben and the band to do is I just thought for this last song, uh, if you guys would stand with me, and what we're going to do is we are going to just sing this worship song. It's an older worship song, but I love it because it has absolutely nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with this moment, with whatever anxiety or challenge or issue you're going through, which praise God, he cares about all those things. But sometimes, even you know the people that you love, you just want to ooze love and affection on them because you love them. And sometimes in worship, it's just so nice to ooze love and affection on God, on Yahweh, our God. 
And so I invite you to sing this song and let this song be us just oozing our affection and adoration and worship to Yahweh, the Lord Most High. Let's worship together.